This is Grace, and welcome back to U.S. History Cracked, the podcast where we learn everything we need to know about American history. So in this episode, this is part five, episode two, where we will be talking about more about the Industrial Revolution and especially when industry comes of age. We're going to be looking specifically a lot about railroads and a bunch of different trusts and the steel industry and a bunch of other industries that used to rule over the American economy. We're going to look at how corruption was still present and how labor unions began in those times. So in the previous episode, we've also went over the Industrial Revolution and we talked a lot about uh, economic cycles and the depressions. We also talked about a lot about the Jim Crow laws and a political case. Today's episode, we're going to focus more on industry itself. So brace yourselves for a very interesting and rather longer episode than usual, but I believe it's definitely worth the listen because there's so much important and very fascinating information in this episode. So to start off, we're going to be talking about the topic of railroads and rails. After the Civil War, there was a massive railroad production. Congress was definitely instrumental in this by giving the companies millions of acres of land. And land, if you think about it, it's not valuable unless there's use to it. So railroads actually gave land value because the railroads were crucial for town development. All of the towns wanted railroads because if a town did not have a railroad, it would basically die because there's no transportation in or out of that town. There was a deadlock over where to build the Transcontinental Railroad. I don't remember if, um, I don't know if you remember previously where we talked about how the South and the North were arguing and who gets this Transcontinental Railroad and how is it going to go across the states. This deadlock was broken after the South seceded. Remember, um, before the Civil War, the South left and this, mean, this means that the U.S. Congress no longer had to you know, accommodate the South. They could just make any decision they wanted according to the North. In 1862, Congress commissioned the Union Pacific Railroad, which stretched from Nebraska to California. So it's basically west to east, east to west in the northern area. Although the project received a lot of money and land, there was corruption still, just like the Credit Mobilier we talked about last episode, who steals lots of money from these companies and they make a lot of more money than the railroad is actually worth. Irishmen laid the tracks and Indians attacked, them, attacked any workers because they wanted to save their land from the Irishmen who were kind of just building along the land. So the Indians and the Irishmen, a lot of them died because of these, you know, frequent fights almost on a daily basis. The Central Pacific Railroad started in California and extended eastward. So think of these two railroads as almost one railroad, but they're starting to build it on different ends. So the Central Pacific Railroad started in California and built eastward and the other one, the Union Pacific Railroad, started from the east and built to the west so they would meet somewhere in the middle. The Central Pacific Railroad, unlike the other one, unlike the Union one who used Irishmen, the California one, they used Chinese workers. In 1869, the Transcontinental Rail Line was completed in Utah, which was the Union Pacific Railroad. So uh, you can see how these two railroads eventually met up in a point and 
In total, the Union Pacific Railroad was 1,086 miles of track, and the Central Pacific Railroad was 689 miles of track. Moving on, let's keep on, let's keep talking about this topic, and now let's go into railroad ties. Before 1900, there were four other transcontinental railroads that were built. In 1883, we had the Northern Pacific Railroad, which was around Lake Superior, and it went all the way to the west. So just think of it, in simple words, as basically stretching from east to west once again. More railroads that stretched through southwest deserts were also built and completed in 1884. So there's so many railroads in the north, the south were also lacking in this area, so they built some southern ones uh, down below. Southern Pacific Railroad went from New Orleans to San Francisco, which went, to, which went from the west to the southeast-ish. So it's kind of like west and then west to east, but also on a downwards diagonal, so southeast-ish. Many people overinvested on land and banks went bankrupt because the land wasn't worth as much as they initially thought. So as I previously mentioned, land isn't as valuable as people think if they don't put the land into use. So because they really think this land is so valuable, they overinvest in their money, which causes these banks to go bankrupt because they're not earning back that money, because they're not making as much as they thought they would have. There were also many different kinds of railroads and innovations that also helped this railroad industry. So there were railroad in innovations in business organizations. So it helped the banking system. Like one really good example is the idea of stocks. Other advancements include the steel rail, which is much stronger than the iron, iron rail, which is what they previously have been using. They've also created the air brake, palace cars, and also signals. So different advancements to increase the safety, efficiency, and effectiveness of the railroad industry. The railway re revolution is also very important. So railroads, they stitched the nation together and generated a huge market and lots of jobs. So if you think about it, there's America's so big, there's no easy way to connect all the states and travel from one state to the other. These railroads and these trains are what allowed America to be kind of connected with one another where they can kind of break down some barriers. It also helped with the rapid industrialization of America because, once again, it allowed easy transportation of these manufactured goods. It also helped, settle, helped people to settle in the harsh Great Plains, which is an area that people really couldn't reach uh, back then because there was no mode of transportation that allowed them to go to that great length of distance. Railroads also created the four national time zones instead of each city having its own time zone. And this, obviously, if you think about it, it'll make the train conductor's job really hard if they have to keep track of every single city's time zone. Finally, railroads also created the millionaire class, so it made a lot of people wealthy. This all sounds really great, but there were also some wrongdoings, and one of them is the credit mobilier scandal, which I've previously mentioned in the last episode. And this shows us that there was corruption and it was not perfect, definitely. Another idea was stock watering, in quotes. Stock watering was a cheap and illegal money-making method. It's basically the idea that companies would overinflate the stock worth to sell them off and make more money. They're basically just saying and improving and kind of increasing the worth, 
the worthiness and the value of a stock so that when they sell it, they'll be able to get more in return. Railroad owners abused the public, they bribed judges and elected their own people to political office. So this would help them to you know, pass different laws or regulations for their industry. As time passed, the railroad giants bounded and bonded with competitors to work together to set prices. And if you are a major in economy or if you are really skilled in economy or economics, you would know that this is called an oligopoly or monopolies. At that time, it was known as pools or cartels. And this was later to be known as trusts. So basically, these two train companies, for example, they're supposed to be going against each other, right? So, you know, abiding by the market price and whatever. But they decide to go beyond that. They're like, you know what, let's work together and set a price really high. So then the customers will have no choice but to take those high prices, which means that both of these people, this pool, this cartel will be able to earn a lot of money. This is definitely not good for consumers. So it's definitely unethical and a big problem in the future. Now let's talk about the government. The government and the public have definitely tried to combat this issue. Farmers formed a group called the Grange to try to stop the occupation and many states gave their attempts too. The Supreme Court issued a ruling in the Wabash case saying that states can't regulate interstate commerce like trains and that's when the states decided to stop giving their attempts. The Supreme Court is basically saying you can't you can't give you can't judge or it's out it's ultra vires which is a law term meaning it is beyond your jurisdiction to make any decisions with regards to issues or matters that are interstate so this train because it doesn't belong to just any state it belongs to America so the states will have no say in what happens the interstate commerce act of 1887 banned some of the corrupt actions and required railroads to publish their rates openly. The act wasn't really a victory, but it really is significant because it represents an attempt by Congress to regulate businesses for society's interests. So just a quick side note, uh, just to recap, trusts are the same idea as cartels, which are the same idea as pools, and all of these terms are synonyms to the word monopoly. So one that's dominating a market or an industry. Now let's talk about mechanization. In 1860, U.S. was the fourth largest manufacturer. But guess what? In 1894, America jumped to first greatest manufacturer. But how does this happen and why did it happen? First of all, it was because of abundant liquid capital. There was, it was an easily accessible asset such as cash, so they had plenty of accessible assets like cash in their inventory and in their treasury. Number two, it was because of natural resources, so things like coal, oil, and iron. Number three, it was because of massive immigration, and this meant that there was going to be cheap labor and allowed them to you know, build many developments and many innovations at a low cost. Next, there were also popular inventions like the cash register, the stock ticker, typewriter, etc. And this made life more efficient and productive, which as in general, if you look at the big picture, all of these inventions will help you know, improve the efficiency of the nation as a whole. In 1876, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. That's only one example. Another example is Thomas Edison and his famous electrical light bulb. Now, let's talk about some trust titans. 
so there's two ways to call these trusts and if you're ever confused with what a trust is just think about monopolies or just like a bad guy who's kind of bullying all those smaller businesses there's a positive connotation and a negative connotation trust titans are also called quote-unquote captains of industry which was a positive way to look at these trusts and if they do good for the society however the negative connotation is quote-unquote robber barons which means that they are you know robbing the society of you know effectiveness and efficiency and bullying other smaller businesses but both of these terms are referring to trusts they want to pioneer new and innovative ways for making money so these trusts are so greedy for that money they're just going to think of many different ways to take out competition and increase their own profit I'm going to give two to three examples First of all, one of these strategies were vertical integration, which was developed by Andrew Carnegie. This basically refers to when you buy out and when you control all aspects of an industry. So for example, Andrew Carnegie, he mined his iron, he transported his iron, he refined it, and then finally he turned his iron into steel. So he basically, all in all, controlled all of the parts of the process, so basically all areas of the industry. So this makes him a trust because he's dominating the entire steel industry. Another strategy is horizontal integration by John D. Rockefeller. He basically simply allied with the other companies or he bought out his competitors to monopolize a given market. He would basically imagine he's in a row, right, and his competitors are to his right, to his left, and he's just, you know, buying them out. Like, you know what, I'm going to buy your company, I'm going to buy your business, and he's going to bully these people, he's going to bully those people until he has the entire ally with everyone, so then he's controlling the entire industry as well. Uh, in other words, he also controlled the oil industry by forcing weaker competitors to go bankrupt. Finally, J.P. Morgan came up with interlocking dictorates, which basically meant that he placed his own men on boards of directors of rival competitors in order to reduce competition. So it was kind of like undercover spies that he would put his own men to lead a competitor's business, which basically is going to turn into his own. Now, we've talked about some examples, but let's go deeper into the supremacy of steel. In the Lincoln times, steel was scarce and expensive, but in the 1900s, America's steel production was as much as England and Germany combined. Due to an invention that made steel making cheaper and much more effective, which was called the Bessemer process. So this allowed America's steel production to really rocket up and rocket super high. Basically, what this process is, is that there's going to be cold air blown on red hot iron burned carbon deposits and then this would purify it. America was one of the few nations with so much coal for fuel, iron for smelting, and other ingredients for steel making. If you think about it, England and Germany, they don't have as much natural resources used for steel making as America possesses. Now, all about steel, but now let's talk about Andrew Carnegie. He is a great representation of the rags to riches, quote unquote, American dream. So I believe there's many different movies regarding and revolving around this topic of the American dream. It basically refers to the idea that people who are once really poor and humble and really nothing, in other words, rags, they'll be able to work their way up to gain riches and be really rich and wealthy from all their hard work. 
And this was a big contrast from Europe, where if you were born poor, it was really hard for you to go from rags to riches. Andrew Carnegie went from a poor boy to a really wealthy man. He didn't like trusts, but in 1900, it was really it was really funny because and ironic because he was technically a trust producing a quarter of the nation's steel. J.P. Morgan wanted to enter the steel business, but he already had a fortune from working in the banking industry on Wall Street. Carnegie threatened to ruin Morgan if he ever did join the business, and in the end, Morgan bought Carnegie's entire business for $400 million. But guess what? Carnegie donated $350 million to charities and libraries, so in the end, Andrew Carnegie only kept $50 million. Morgan took the business and launched the U.S. Steel Corporation in 1901, which became the world's first billion-dollar corporation. So you can see how fast these businesses are advancing and they're, with their new money-making methods and everything, just these businesses are making so much money at the, in those times. Now let's talk about Rockefeller. In 1859, there was a guy called Drake. This random guy, he used oil to get money and by the 1870s, oil was actually used to light lamps all over the nation. So if you think about it, this guy was kind of ahead of the game. By 1885, Edison's electrical light bulb helped grow the electric industry and made the oil obsolete. So it shined for a few years and it was bye-bye because Edison's electrical light bulb came along. However, oil was just the beginning of the gasoline burning engine. So don't think that the oil industry just died because it hasn't even started yet. This was kind of just like a preview of the soon to be extremely big oil industry. Rockefeller crushed weaker comp competitors and he says that this is part of the natural process. But his company did indeed produce superior oil at a cheaper price. Other trusts also emerged which generally made uh, better products at cheaper prices. So if you think about it, this is more reasonable because these trusts, they actually make better products at a lower price. So it, it would make sense for consumers to buy those better products at a lower price. Now let's talk about wealth and this idea of gospel of wealth. The gospel of wealth is the idea of the rich that worked from poverty. It basically stated that they thought that the rich were wit that the rich were wealthy because they were destined to be in that manner and they were destined to help society with their money. So another theory was social Darwinism, which is from Charles Darwin's applications, which basically stretched the theory of survival of the fittest with regards to businesses. He's basically saying that you know the, com the companies and the businesses that survived were meant to survive and were most fitting to survive. He said that Carnegie was at the top of the steel industry because he was most fit to run it. Re Reverend Russell Conwell of Philadelphia was rich by speeches. He preached that poor people made themselves poor and rich people made themselves rich which was everything was because of one's actions only. So you can kind of see like the different ideas of surrounding money and surrounding wealth and social class. And it's really interesting to look at the different perspectives of people at that time. Lawyers used the 14th Amendment to defend trusts and judges agreed saying that corporations were legal people and they had the entitlement to their property. 
So, which I believe is really, you know, controversial because this would mean that the trust kind of have unlimited power if the judges are agreeing that they're entitled to their property and can do whatever they want. In 1890, there was something established called the Sherman Antitrust Act, and this forbade combinations, which basically means, you know, alliances with competitors, as I've previously discussed, you know, earlier on, about like trust and pools and setting high prices. So, but the thing is that this act did not distinguish between good trusts and bad trusts. It also proved to be ineffective because there was no way to enforce this act. In 1914, it was finally properly enforced, and those that were prosecuted were actually punished. Now let's talk about the South and the industry. The South remained agrarian despite all of these in industrial advances. So, like you see, all these innovations, the money-making methods, the physical inventions, right, the light bulb, the everything. But the South are still saying, like, we want to be farmers. James Buchanan Duke developed a huge cigarette industry in the form of the American Tobacco Company, and he made many donations to Duke University, which is a really well-known and popular university in our day today. The North also kept the South from gaining a competitive advantage by setting rates, but the thing is, cheap labor. Cheap labor actually led to the creation of many jobs in the South, and despite the poor wages, the white Southerners saw employment as a blessing. So here I want to conclude the Industrial Revolution, but we also have to talk about the unions in just a second. But let's talk about the impact of the new Industrial Revolution. So basically, all that we have discussed in this episode so far. First of all, immigrants swarmed America since standards of living rose due to these new inventions and innovations. Number two, Jeffersonian ideals fell. If you remember Thomas Jefferson versus Hamilton ideals, you know that Hamilton was looking at you know strong economy and everyone's going to be market like industri industry and all that ideas. But Jefferson was saying no, we're going to be an agriculture and agrarian country, and we're going to be dominated by farmers. Which, as you can see, was not working out since farmers were turning into wage workers. Women had also been encouraged to work, and finally, there was there was actually an increase in foreign trade, and that's due to the pressure that all of this domestic manufacturing has caused. If they don't trade with other people outside of America, all of this production is going to flood the domestic market. Okay, and to end off today's episode, let's just talk about one final structure, one final point about unions. So, first of all, workers at that time they couldn't improve themselves because they were simply replaced with anyone that their employers found. Because once again, there were so many immigrants, they were just so easily replaced. Like, if I don't like you, you can leave. I'll just find someone new the next day. Corporations had many weapons against strikers, such as hiring strike breakers or asking courts to order strikers to stop, and if they continued, the government would bring in troops. Other methods are hiring replacements to starve strikers into submission and sign contracts banning them from unions. In other words, blacklisting. The middle class eventually grew deaf to the workers' outcries. The common view, the common perspective at that time, was that people like Carnegie and Rockefeller had fought and worked hard to get to the top, and they thought that all of the workers could do the same if they "quote unquote" really wanted to improve their situations. But as we know, this really isn't the case because there was no way for them to improve their situations. 
Civil war also made labor look good and helped labor unions grow. The first ever labor union was formed in 1866 and it represented a giant step by workers and attracted many members. But unfortunately, it only lasted six years and, and it excluded the Chinese. Plus, it also did not try to get blacks or women to join. Just a side note, a union means employees that are banding together against employers for something, you know, big or something that of a common purpose. This was a huge theme in the 20th century. Another, another idea of a labor union is the Knights of Labor of 1869. They continued secretly until 1881. And this one was similar to the National Labor Union and won a number of strikes for the eight-hour day. They advocated a violent overthrow of the government in Chicago, and this is when tensions started to grow and when the Knights of Labor's popularity started to plummet. In 1886, a bombing occurred in Chicago, and there were found a few guilty anarchists. In 1892, John P. Altgeld was, who was a Democrat, he became the governor of Illinois and pardoned the three surviving anarchists. However, in the end, the Knights of Labor was then forever associated with the Haymarket Square, Hay Square bombing and lowered its effectiveness and popularity. Finally, the last topic we're going to talk about is AF of L. In 1886, Samuel Gompers founded the American Federation of Labor. This consisted of an association of self-governing national unions and it was really accepting of each union's own independence. So think of this as like an alliance between national union labors. Goppers demanded a fairer share for labor and simply wanted quote unquote more. He wanted better wages, better hours, and better working conditions overall. AF of L established itself on solid but very narrow foundations because it wanted to speak for all workers but fell way short of that. And all in all, a labor union's great weakness is that they only embraced a small minority of all workers, only 3% of all workers. In 1900, workers' rights were finally started to be given, and some and most of what they wanted were being granted. So this brings me to an end to today's episode, and I hope you were able to learn something new about the Industrial Revolution as well as labor unions. Make sure to stick with me and stay tuned as I talk to you guys next time.